Coffeehouse. Today we have a book that I thoroughly hated. Hate, Inc. by Matt Taibbi, published October 8th, 2019. It's a disingenuous childish greed by a scare quotes here, actually like terrifying quotes. It's like the Exorcist and the Babadook quotes. Journalist that is supposed to be a mea culpa calling out journalists in the Trump era. It is not, however, primarily concerned with the open dishonesty and narrative policing that is a clear detriment to the country and everyone in it. It mostly calls out innocuous inadequacies that don't betray the deeper moral decay of the industry. That said, as always, we will look into the content and then we're going to do an analysis and then we will do some big picture thinking about this whole situation. And that will be that. We have some links in the description if you're interested. I have a comparative literature book that's out there somewhere. And otherwise, we talk about books, good books, bad books, big ideas, and try to navigate the inadequacies of being human. So the contents. We start out with a shout-out to QAnon and 4chan, and this is me talking. I don't know where on earth this comes from. This is weird fear-mongering stuff related to QAnon. I follow every prominent conservative in the country and listen to virtually all of their podcasts, and something that was said on QAnon or 4chan has never been the basis for an argument. I, I couldn't even tell you a single thing that was said by QAnon. I occasionally see a meme or something that comes out of 4chan, I'm told comes out of 4chan, but I do not know what the prominence of these particular groups, where this came from. Anyway, but the author says that Republicans are already prone to outrage, but the Dems had to be trained to be willing to be outraged. There's a quick plug of the Steele dossier, which will come up later, and then we start on Trump pretty quickly. This is one of those hilarious things about a moment in history or the way that people want to define themselves, is how prominent this person, these five letters, play in a person's self-definition. As I think it was God Saad in the last book that we read, as he talked about it, and the best description I have ever heard about what Trump was, is that Trump was an aesthetic injury to the ivory tower. And that's why we have such a weird, emotional, overly emotional reaction to it. So the author himself, he suggests that Trump is an unfit president, which is like the nicest thing any of them have ever said about him. <laughs> but that the institutions follow him into disrepute. He's hyperbolic, so they are. This is a continual theme that comes up in this book, is that, yeah, media did bad things, but it was because Trump did them first. Trump did something. He acted some way. He sullied this particular method of communicating, and therefore the media reacted in kind. And it's this consistent exculpation that is so incredibly dishonest. But even more so, it's, it's this kind of weird, childish inclination. So we get some stuff about the author. He started as a fiction writer, and he describes this book as confessional. This is one of the framing mechanisms that might be the most charitable to the author, is that he describes it as a confessional. Maybe he's got some kind of meta work going on here that he is demonstrating as a journalist his own underlying and not particularly surreptitious bias. He's demonstrated that in the way that he wrote this book, and so it's it's this weird meta structure that you're supposed to get when you're reading it. Um, maybe that's what the author did, but he does describe the book as confessional. So he says that he typically has a blue audience, and he will say that one party is better than the other. But that the media has ended up working in concert with Trump, creating this mirror image of him. And he says, <laughs> this again is something that continues to come up. He says, which side is worse is immaterial. And then goes on to say, Fox may have more noxious politics, but MSNBC is in the same business. 
Again, there's consistently this pretend mea culpa and this, oh, there's a problem on both sides kind of posturing. But the author will consistently just trash Fox to a much greater proportion than the other, than its flip side. He says he has a natural antipathy for Republican politics, but that he wants to start a conference. I hate that phrase. It's one of my least favorite phrases in the history of the world. I want to start a conversation about X. It's so bad. It's, it's like the phrase, I'm the type of person. It's one of those things that has no content and all it's, do, it's got this weird, sickly, egocentric sheen to it. But I, he wants to start a conversation about how much is real, how much of this stuff going on is real, and how much, is it, how much of it is media created. Okay, a little more background. His father was in the news and described, told him that sources are relationships and that when you talk to people, you want to ask them about what they want to talk about. And he says that at a certain point he read Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky and the other guy. And when he read it, it blew his mind. It was a dazzling book. And there was talk in this particular book. We'll read it at some point. Of course, we read Propaganda earlier by Bernays, right? We read a number of other. We have another one that's coming down the pike that's a big one. But this one we'll read at some point, Manufacturing Consent. But it talks about how censorship is covert. It's not the overt kind of censorship that we talk about nowadays. (laughs) But the debate is choreographed in media, that it's carefully curated. So it seems like you have people who are debating multiple sides of an issue. But in reality, they are on the same side and trying to curate a certain conversation in public so that keep the the sheeple at bay and for Chomsky as far as I understood it it's not even necessarily this completely conscious effort it's something that they're all they're working on to be able to do that like to avoid dissenters to bring dissenters onto their shows it's something that just happens over time you know some of them actively try to do this but otherwise uh, it's something that just happens as part of the way the conversation in media occurs and one of the ideas that Chomsky has in here of the worthy and unworthy victims framework. So the worthy victims would be somebody who's killed by like a foreign adversary. You'd consider them and treat them as worthy victims. But people who are killed by allies or your own government, they would be considered unworthy victims. Now, obviously, there are a number of things, I'm sure, that come out of this book that would be wonderful to actually discuss. Like there being a choreographed debate uh, that's what people on the other side would call the establishment, you know, the, the entrenched establishment that they're always concerned about having too much power. And I'm sure there's a lot to be able to pull out of this, but uh, he's just talking about it here as a point of this was something that really motivated his, his interest in politics. Then we get uh, Murdoch, who comes in with Fox, and he just did very well. He w- apparently hoovered up the white and old audiences selling siloed anger. And then we began to divide. So now you have Fox on one side and the rest of the media is supposed to be uh, this kind of, you know, collection of slight biases, but they're generally just objectively trying to report the news. And then he says here, the New York Times, for the most part, doesn't traffic in deceptions and that he admonishes people to trust most reporters. So this was 2019, and uh, but this was after the whole Mueller investigation blew up. So I think it's uh, incredibly irresponsible <laughs> to talk about this. One of the big stories, like around January 6th, Officer Brian Sicknick, the New York Times ran stories about him having been bludgeoned to death, murdered by Trump supporters, and this became part of the narrative, the impeachment narrative. And there are many things, I mean, like the 1619 Project, there are many things the New York Times does now that are explicitly designed, open deceptions to try to push a narrative. So I don't know if this particular author would revise his position on the New York Times at this point, but that is what he had to say about it. But he says, and this is one of the good things that is peppered in here, that the these media companies are trying to sell you something. 
That's what they're doing. They use the framework of, did you hear about X? This uh, crazy thing. You have to be really concerned about X, whatever it is, so they can get your eyes, so they can sell you something from one of their advertisers. And this idea that's consistent with it, that works for the establishment or for the choreographed debate, as, as Chomsky would put it, is that the more separate people are, the easier they are to defeat. Then we get to the 2016 election. Of course, this is a, a big one. <laughs> and the big question that frames the whole idea of the media response to Trump and the 2016 election is why do they hate us? This is the question that he asked, that 80% of people don't trust the media. And this is another one. This is me coming in again, but this is another one of those framing issues that I consistently see in this, is that the question isn't what is the correct answer and how do we better report to try to get people closer to it. The, the idea is that we knew who you should vote for. We already knew. We knew who you should vote for, and we didn't do enough to make sure that you did. It's like, you don't know any better than we do, we journalists. We just didn't do enough to push you to vote for the person that we decided you need to vote for. So there were different, there's like Kristoff who blamed the media, Obama said it was the profit motive in the media that was the problem. This author talks about how the media had emphasized likability previously in other kinds of elections, and so that became a liability because Trump seemed more likable than Hillary. But then you have this response to it once Trump gets elected, where now the media says, okay, we have to change all the rules now to be able to attack Trump. And instead of calling it like misinformation or something like that or inaccurate, then you have to call them lies. So now it becomes a, a different framing. And it was turned into a situation where any half-bright con man could get elected. And there's just these throwaway lines about it. he's sexist and racist, of course, without expounding upon the that whole allegation. Okay, then we get to a 10 rules of hate, and everybody likes a collection of 10. Any kind of list, a numbered list, is really helpful. So these 10 rules. Number one is that there are only two ideas. It's a binary. Again, these are the rules of hate. Only two ideas. It's a binary. Number two is that the two ideas are in permanent conflict. And he points out, now we have a WWE performer in the White House. Again, he's blaming Trump first and then saying the media is a reaction to it. Number three is hate people, not institutions, is a rule of hate. So now, instead of the institutions, the collections of things, or the impersonal things, it's the people themselves that you're supposed to hate. And again, cites that Trump was a brilliant propaganda mechanism for being able to do this. Number four is that everything is someone else's fault. It's never your fault. And he references the concentration camps here idea. I think the ones uh, as put forth by AOC. But I can't remember actually the specific context. All I put was concentration camps in my notes. So if he did this in order to say that the concentration camps as alleged by AOC were actually a result of the Flores settlement that came during the Clinton administration and that it wasn't actually the Trump administration's fault that this thing happened related to this idea of the concentration camps, then, then I give him, you know, a sprinkling of kudos. But right after this, oh yes, he mentions the immigrant rapist comment used allegedly to create anti-immigrant sentiment. And it's this kind of sloppy nonsense. So we've been over this. There are there are a number of these kinds of things, these myths that, that come out that are just trotted out, dumped in here, and just passed over. And his means here of kind of squaring the debate is that he talks about how there are currently 70,000 a day immigrants and wonders if there's any good way of handling that, which would be a reasonable nuanced view on the situation. Of course, now it's currently the highest that it's been in 21 years. Uh, that is the last I checked when it comes to illegal immigration. And of course, there's a distinction between immigration and illegal immigration. And there's so much obfuscation around this issue, and it's just furthered in these kinds of books with these kinds of premises. 
And again, it's just lip service to the kinds of ways that we need to think. So he says most problems are bipartisan, but then he'll, of course, leave that theory behind quite promptly. So number five, rules of hate is nothing is everyone's fault. Then he uh, references Trump taking credit for the stock market and how it wasn't, you know, just up to him. Number six is root don't think. So it's no longer about compromise. And it was uh, someone at the Times, his name is Gutenberg, said that journalists need to rethink objectivity in the era of Trump. So the author is citing this as uh, an example of the idea of rooting instead of thinking. Number seven is the other side is literally Hitler. Of course, we see plenty of this. First, he attacks Hannity after 9-11, Hannity kind of using a broad brush to paint Muslims thereafter, and then references conservatives calling everyone Hitler, which is utterly hilarious, and then talks about Trump's authoritarian pitch that he goes after elites while secretly being supported by them. Now, this is so much projection, it's hilarious. Of course, Trump, whatever he was, and whatever theories he put forth, and whatever sloppy rhetoric he used, the end result of his policies and efforts would never have been authoritarian. He had many, many opportunities to go that direction. He never, never did. And once we get, once we get a new liberal, supposedly moderate liberal administration, they go just full on, 100% in the authoritarian direction. And virtually every narrative being crafted right now aggrandizes the power and pull of the national government. So this uh, pure projection here and the go after elites while being supported by them. Of course, you just think of AOC in her Chick-fil-A dress. Tax the rich while I spend $30,000 a plate or get my free plate comped by rich people while I hang out with rich people while all the peasants wear masks and we don't have to. Absolutely hilarious. So then uh, I know I missed I missed number eight somewhere in here, but the author goes on to reference claims of democracy being rigged and the threats to jail Hillary at the debates and how Trump, like all con men, depended on the true details to sell lies, that he played on racial panics, but then Hillary dropped the ball by using the basket of deplorables comment. He references Charlottesville with just no irony whatsoever. I recently read the full transcript of the statement on that. It's unbelievable. It's one of those things that is so completely far afield that it has reached the status of a pure newspeak. It's one of those things that it's being taken to mean the opposite of what it was and that any person with any modicum of self-respect or integrity would be able to see right through it, but it just keeps coming up and keeps getting put in books like these. So he says Trump deserves epithets and then some, but all his supporters, do they need him? So this is the charitable aspect of what he's saying here is that Trump deserves it. Sure, all the epithets and more, but do all of his supporters? Sure, some of them do. Maybe a majority, maybe a super majority do, but do all of them? This is the charity that we get from this. And he says, of course, race was a dominant factor in Trump's rise. Again, just tossed on in there and references Trump's lunatic inability to denounce the KKK or Nazis, which is, again, one of those things that is utterly newspeak hilarious, where it came to the point where Trump literally had to put out a video before he got banned off of everything. (laughs) He literally had to put out a video of 38 times where he denounced it in public on camera and in the Charlottesville statements that he made, he did the same very same thing. And yet, I mean, even was it who was was it when he was on the show when he was being interviewed by one of the who ended up being one of the debate moderators for Biden Trump and the debate moderator said oh, will you denounce white supremacy when literally previously in another interview Trump had done that to him so number 9 in the fight against hitler everything is permitted and i remember when it started off with is it okay to punch a nazi that was the question 
If you know somebody is an actual Nazi who spouts Nazi nonsense, is it okay to physically attack them? That's where it started, and now we are where we are. There's a reference to uh, what's her non comedian person who used the feckless C word comment related to Melania Trump, I think. Or who was it? Robert De Niro who said F Trump at one of the award shows. Like he was so, so brave. And then the harassment of uh, people like Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Stephen Miller, press secretaries for Trump in various restaurants. And then again, references had the fact that Trump was uncivil and he did win. So <laughs> that's kind of a, he set out the playbook for people thereafter. And then number 10 is feel superior. In references to how Trump calls people losers. Having gotten out of the uh, morass of that situation, then we go into some other ideas like the church of averageness. So how the dumbing down of journalists, how the anchors are just kind of complete idiots. And we have the question reiterated here, why do they hate us? He has a phrase here that Fox bias is 100 times worse, but uh, moving on from that. He says, why journalists think they hate us is because they are mostly conservatives and those conservatives can't deal with reality. He says that they hate them because they are too lazy to be informed, that Fox is a giant misinformation machine, and because the media was attacked by Trump. So at least this is, this is something that is actually self-effacing that could have gotten us somewhere because he's saying that these are things that journalists thought that those were the reasons that they hate him, but they were wrong about those reasons. So there's the potential start of being legitimately self-effacing, but we never got there. Then there was the standard, the who would you rather have a beer with? And you were saying that journalists pushed the standard, and that was one of the main reasons uh, that led to the utter downfall of the American politic. He references the idea of the electability standard, so voting for somebody who would be electable, like in the next stage of the election, as opposed to somebody who you support the most. And references Nate Silver, one of the most hilariously inaccurate pollsters with national prominence, you know, of all time. And then blames Trump, of course, for moving the whole media into the WWE space. Then we do actually get some good suggestions out of here. You don't need to watch the news. <laughs> but it turns into this kind of weird thing where he suggests that journalists are on some kind of special plane. And if they had the motivation to do it, then they could be the ones who are educating all the rest of us. But he suggests the world is too complex for you to understand. Yes, perfectly fine. That is very true. And if we were serious, we would make it a priority to educate. So he's saying journalists, if they were serious, they'd make it a priority to educate and that journalists should challenge audiences. That should be one thing. And then he talks about how Fox is so horrible. But the thing is here, of course, what's the posture? The posture is, and he does this at another point too, the posture is that journalists do have some kind of special access to the truth that they would be able to, if given the time and inclination, they would be able to impart the truth to the dirty denizens, but they just don't, they don't have that time and inclination. Of course, this is utterly ridiculous, as if some journalist who spends a couple of days on a story, a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years investigating a particular story, that they would have some kind of perfect, unfettered understanding of some complex issue. Of course, people who spend a decade, two decades, three decades studying a particular very narrow question in one particular discipline won't have some unfettered, perfect, unbiased understanding of that particular discipline. That's why it seems like journalism is kind of the Dunning-Kruger profession. It's, <laughs> it's the area where that concept is most dangerous. And if anybody who doesn't know what that idea is, the Dunning-Kruger effect, is where you have no information about something, you're not particularly confident about it, you get a little bit of information, and you disproportionately raise your confidence level in your understanding of the topic until you get enough information to know that you know very little about this topic. 
So the Dunning-Kruger effect is just overconfidence in your understanding about something. And all of us are subject to it and exhibit it in one way or another. And we previously talked about it in the context of having access to social media and Wikipedia and all the information in the universe. So we'll spend 10 minutes or an hour or something on some topic and then we'll feel overly confident about our understanding. So you wonder if journalism just takes that to another degree. <laughs> Anyway, so after that, we go to a moral panic and how this is what the media has to try to inculcate in people. They're always coming for your children. Somebody out there is coming for your children. They're just a bunch of scares. The ones he doesn't reference, which might have been very useful to make this a legitimate mea culpa, would be things like police brutality. Or COVID, this was pre-COVID, obviously, he couldn't have done that. But the fear monger related to Trump, or white supremacists, or January 6th, which would come later, of course. Or the racism epidemic, or hate speech, or misinformation. All those things are these ludicrous scares, these moral panics that are being used for narrative shaping. The author references the immigrant caravan panic, that 7,000 people coming in an immigrant caravan was not an invasion. And things like uh, that there was always an imminent fall of Trump that was always just on the horizon that Trump was about to fall and be arrested and being kicked out of office and all that sort of thing. And then Russiagate. And here, later, he'll do a legitimate analysis of Russiagate, which is much appreciated. But again, I I mean, this book should be tossed onto the trash heap of history. But the Russiagate reference here specifically was that Russiagate, the problem with Russiagate was that it delayed the, an analysis of 2016. That was the problem, that it was a distraction from being able to really look at 2016. It wasn't the ludicrous, widespread media support for a, a conspiracy theory that was complete nonsense on its face. That wasn't it. It was that it delayed an analysis of 2016. Then he goes into discussing about how there the are factual issues that the media had related to stuff like when BuzzFeed reported that Trump had told Comey to lie and the Michael Brown case and just the general use of unnamed sources and the fact that journalists forgot that officials can lie. This is one of the, kind of the biggest things about our current era is just this unmitigated trust in the FBI and other national law enforcement institutions like that that are federal specifically, not the local ones, of course, because they're all racist. And trust in in massive corporations and trust in politicians when they tell you something. It's like this weird thing that they forgot that officials will lie about things. Then there was uh, a chapter on the class taboo talking about class and how Trump was a populist, which is always the term that is used to describe the opposing side as opposed to your side. There's a question here about why was his pitch working and a reference to a book called Listen Liberal from 2016, where the author suggested the Democrat Party has changed to support elitism in the form of the professional class instead of the working class. They left the working class behind. I think that's an incredibly prescient book. And then he says that politicians and journalists absolve themselves of any responsibility for what's gone wrong. Of course, for the author, what's gone wrong is that they elected Donald Trump. So then he suggests to turn it off. Then he does some uh, liberal coddling here. Uh, he references how white dudes are terrible. Uh, I think there were three specific references to how terrible white people, white men specifically are. And then again suggests something good here, that they don't want you to have an inner monologue. They don't want you to be thinking to yourself about these things so you have this self-analysis going on. They want you to just have their narrative playing through your head. And a religion becomes a cult when it doesn't allow testing of its premises. Then we go into the invasion of Iraq. There's a lengthy portion here where it's talking about how media screwed up when it came to the invasion of Iraq and WMDs. And there was this constant promise of future bombshells that would validate all these things. 
And here it probably was much easier for him to try to be honest about this stuff because it, it was ostensibly on the other side. You know, it's just he can just say journalists were lied to and we weren't forceful enough about getting the right information. And then the chapter comes about Mueller, the Mueller investigation in Russiagate and how journalists broke every rule and the Steele dossier that was funded by the DNC and had ties to Clinton. So it was opposition research that was created and then used as a basis to be able to investigate Trump and start the whole Russiagate in the Mueller investigation. And Adam Schiff, representative of the United States, uh, specifically read it out to the Steele dossier into the official record in Congress. Even Steele himself, the author of the dossier, said it needed verification because he knew he had, <laughs> I mean, it was all nonsense. And then the FISA warrant was primarily based on this dossier that was uh, gotten illegally to be able to look into Carter Page, who's working with the Trump campaign, so that they could have some kind of surveillance on Trump himself. Now, this particular author doesn't reference uh, the meetings with Obama or Biden and what happened in those meetings or Peter Strzok, the disgraced but now uh, professor at Georgetown University, I believe. <laughs> but Peter Strzok was one of the FBI agents who was assigned to this particular case and who lied to the FISA court to try to get the warrant. So there wasn't much about that sort of stuff. But there's this phrase here, again, that all this stuff put reporters in awkward positions. So it wasn't the reporter's fault. It was that they were put in awkward positions. But he says this was worse than WMDs, to his credit. That we have an epilogue where he apologizes for putting Maddow on the cover and tries to justify him putting Maddow on there next to, you know, the Fox News personality that he put on there. And then he has an interview with Noam Chomsky about manufacturing consent, where he bashes Trump a little bit more, where he says Trump presents others as elites while actually working for them, and how it's a standard trick, how the population has become more conspiratorially minded, and that Trump is good at making media seem like an institution. And again, that's a clever trick, and it turns people against the media. So anyway, that's that was this trash heap of a book. So to move into the analysis. <laughs> The thing is, this is the liberal. This is the liberal that we're talking about. Uh, you have insane progressives who are barely conscious. You know, they're like amoeba who just kind of gravitate toward a food source. So the defense there is just to toss red meat at somewhere reasonable, somewhat reasonable, and hope they head that direction. But then you have the intellectual elite liberals, you know, people like uh, Sam Harris and like Matt Taibbi, who are more necessary to right the ship. They have a disproportionate voice when it comes to these things and reestablishing standards of reality. I'm not even talking about specific political ideologies or supporting one candidate over another, but reestablishing standards of reality and some kind of a modicum of personal integrity when it comes to assessing truth claims. Sam Harris, I know he, he had some kind of a tweet at some point where he says, where he did a mea culpa, where he apologized for believing that the Biden administration was so necessary in the face of Trump. But again, it's these intellectual elite liberals. And yet, having read this and having read a couple of these kinds of books and seen what they said, it just seems like this is a kind of quiet derangement. It doesn't seem like you, you can talk people back from this cliff either. The entire means of analysis is infused with this derisive rejection of objectivity. It's almost as if objectivity would be an affront. It would be an, a moral affront to try to be objective about this information. And while the author contributes to everything terrible about the media while pretending to diagnose it in this book, so big picture-wise, this isn't a problem on both sides in the way that people try to describe it. That's one of those things that it's a, it's a binary built on a binary. So you oversimplify by saying there are just two sides. That's an oversimplification in itself. It's a binary. And then you oversimplify 
again by saying that both sides do the same thing. They don't. Just to reference Sam Harris, Sam Harris talked about it at some point where he talked about how there are different religious ideologies. Back in simpler times when we were talking about that, <laughs> there are different religious ideologies and they have an impact on what people do, just like an extreme Jainist. And if you don't know what a Jain is, they are extreme anti-violence. So they don't want to hurt anything. They don't want to hurt a fly. They don't want to step on anything ever. So if they're extreme, it's very different from somebody who has, you know, an Abrahamic book being extreme. But it's the same thing when it comes to political ideologies. There are far more dangerous ideologies than others. And the constellation of ideologies that cluster together can be much more dangerous than others. The most concerning ideological factor that we have to worry about right now is the one that concentrates power. There are budding genocidal sociopaths in every society at all times. They're there. They're out there. The trick of modernity is limiting the mechanisms of power so sociopaths won't be able to accomplish much beyond something like driving an SUV into a crowd of people. That's the trick of modernity. But the ideology that is supporting the concentration of power is the one that is much more dangerous than the one that is trying to give it back to people individually. So anyway, we got through that book. We were supposed to do uh, a discussion episode on our previous one, Gadsad's book, but I wanted to get this one up. You know, I thought this would be longer, so I just wanted to kind of get this done and nailed, get it up, and then we can think about some discussions about the other books. But anyway, there's uh, another comparative literature book that I am just finishing up. I'm doing some final edits on it. I think it's absolutely hilarious. So I'd greatly appreciate anybody who wants to take a look at that one. I will, you know, plug it as it comes closer. Otherwise, we'll have some more books coming up, and I hope people like the new look. I'm, I'm trying to do something a little more bright and modern, and uh, hopefully you have a good December. We're almost there. I can't believe this. It feels like it's still January or something. I can't believe this year's over. But I will see you in December, and then we'll be moving on to 2022. See what fresh hell 2022 will be. Hope all is well. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs>